Purposely Podcasts. We deliberately speak to social entrepreneurs, charity founders, and all-round awesome people to hear their founder story. Really warm welcome to Sonia Thursby, who's joined me. Sonia is the CEO of the Yes Disability, which is an Auckland-based charity, but it's got national focus. Welcome, Sonia. Oh, thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, really good to connect. And um, I thought we could start by just jumping straight in at the deep end and talking about what Yes Disability does and what your vision is for the, for uh, New Zealand. Uh, so Yes Disability is, it's two things. One, it's an organisation that delivers services and it looks at taking the whole of New Zealand and making everything accessible for young people. So that's around not just physically accessible, but around education and employment. But the other thing it is, is it's a big office block and there's 14 different organizations all working in the disability sector, share the building. So we're able to, if a family comes in or a young person and they've got any issues or concerns or want information, we're able to triage them really quickly um, around the building because one of the things we hear all the time is how difficult it is to find your way around a really complex um, structure of health and social development, etc. So we're able to take almost take their hand but virtually and navigate them through a crazy system so that they can get the services they need to really make for themselves a meaningful life. So, um, and that's a great part of what we do. People come in, um, we do what we call just like a spot check. They can spot check all the things they want to do. So that's our snapshot. And then we start, right, how do we make that snapshot of your life what you'd like it to be a reality? And what sort of issues do they face? And is there an example of someone that you're particularly proud of that your organization's helped? I think that there's so many in so many different ways. So for um, for instance, a young person, most young people with disabilities, I'm not disabled young people, you know, what do you want? I want to get a job, I want to get married, I want to drive a car. Um, those things are hard enough for young people. If you've got a disability, the opportunity to be able to leave home and live on your own, drive a car, get a job, is so slim. So I think of, there's two young guys actually, both wanted to leave home, both young Pacific Island rogues I loved them both wheelchair users um, and we were able to support them to get into education so they went to um, Auckland University and then into a student flat which wasn't easy because there's not many that's accessible um, and then passed the driving test so one of them now uh, 26 now advises the government you know so just I always look at our role is the young people don't know how to open the doors. I'll open the door and I'll keep my foot against the door until they've gone through that door. So, because given the opportunities, they will make a difference. They can build for themselves meaningful lives. Yeah. That opportunity. Yeah. yeah, and removing barriers and, and let's say enable them to, to yeah. um, swoop on them. And on a, on a personal level, um, you've been in the sector in New Zealand for over 20 years. Um, but you're actually from from the UK. I am indeed. I you're am. a Brit. And mm -hmm. whereabouts in, in England did you grow up? 
So I was born in Ealing. I grew up in Bournemouth down. No, I was born in Ealing, grew up in Himmel Hempstead, which is just outside of London. And then I moved to Bournemouth when I got married with my kids. But yeah, I grew up in a pretty rough council housing estate um, in Hemel Hempstead, just outside London. And what was home like? What was home life like? Um, home was, I had two brothers, older and younger, and mum and dad. Home was interesting. You know, it's, um, it's a very different world now. And I think, you know, later on we'll talk about my best friend, Kaz, but that's why I met Kaz, who's been my friend since I was two. And part of what we describe our childhood is we survived it. And our best memories are sitting in the gutter as two little girls swapping beads, which we seriously thought were diamonds, out of old tobacco tins. So like, it, it was quite a unique um, upbringing if you look nowadays, but in those days, your kids on the council house, yeah, we were okay. Mm. And didn't have a lot, but had a lot of fun with that sort of... We looked after ourselves, so we really didn't have very much. None of us did. But what we had was community. You know, if I think about the cul-de-sac I lived in, the lady next door was called Auntie Mary. The other one was Auntie Hazel. The other one was, you know, so mm. all of, there was a whole cul-de-sac of people that could either flip you around the ear or look out for you. So you were very safe in an yeah. unsafe environment. Yeah. And so give, give me or this in some context about what year this was growing up. Nine to, uh, early 60s. So I'm mm. 62. So yeah, a long while and, ago. And you touched on um, a, a best friend called, is it Kaz? <laughs> My best friend Kaz. A, yeah. yeah. She's really important in your kind of future direction, wasn't she? I think, um, you know, to do any work in the community, you have to have it really in your heart because it's tough. It's fun. It's every emotion you're ever going to live. So my best friend Kaz was born with her feet back to front. So in 1958, um, potentially she was not going to ever walk, but she spent much of her first 13 years in Stanmore Orthopaedic Hospital where they slowly straightened her feet. Um, she had the forest gum calipers. That's how we used to go to school. She didn't have a wheelchair. I pushed her to school in a push chair. So at a very early age, I saw the prejudice, the bullying, and the meanness against someone who was different. Whereas she was just my friend Kaz, we swapped beads, we played with dolls. But to others, she was something to be stared at, um, something to be ridiculed, someone. So that's from, from a very early age, I didn't think that was okay. And then I think the change was when we were about 13, 14, Kaz's feet are really deformed, even though she can walk. And we were in a shoe shop and I was trying these shoes on. And this lady came across who worked there and said, I hope you're not going to put these shoes on those feet. Now, that I remember just, you know, even now saying it, just mortified and hurt. And, but that stuff still happens, maybe not so blatantly. So from, I always talk about my friend Kaz. Um, and that's how I got into FAB, which in those days was physically handicapped, able-bodied, because she was the you know, physically disabled one and I was the able-bodied one. And we could just go there as a couple of teenage girls that were checking out the boys, listening to music and doing all those cool, normal things with no judgment. So, mm. yeah, for me, it's about justice. 
and they that would have been quite a unique organization back then that so that that sort of support oh totally unique so um it was there was very few groups throughout the whole of england um and and the whole mission of or the statement is making more of life together and that's really what it is and does and was um, it was also in Hong Kong, funnily enough. It went to Hong Kong a few years after and it became the main service, social service provider for disabled people in Hong Kong. But in the UK, it was very much around social, recreational, about bringing... It, it came from a guy who was non-disabled who went on a camp. Um, no, a disabled guy who went on a camp with non-disabled people and said, why can't everybody do this? Why? Why do we have to be shut away? So it started as annual camps where kids with and without disabilities came together and then went on to be much bigger in youth centres and yeah. So it's it is unique. And so we'll we'll go into this a bit more. So but you you're also you combine your role. So you're CEO of Yes Disability, but you're also a voluntary CEO of FAB New Zealand. Um, and we'll we'll go into that in a minute. But how the Devil, did you find yourself in New Zealand? So, what, why, and how? Well, this is really quite funny. So, um, unfortunately, I, I got married, I had two children, and then, like many marriages, ours broke up, although we're still good friends. And my husband moved to America. My then husband, he, he was husband. a Brit. Yeah, he was a Brit, but he moved to America with his new wife. And he, he, so he used to call me and say, send the kids over for six weeks. And he did that once, and I was like, I'm just bored sitting around for six weeks. So I decided to save my money and book a trip to New Zealand because I'd always wanted to come to New Zealand. So I did. Mm. Um, and I landed at Christchurch Airport and this guy standing next to me said, is that your case? So I was like, yeah, thanks. He was like, oh, are you English? And I said, yeah. Anyway, I got chatting to him and he said, oh, if you come to Wellington, give me a call and we'll go for a drink. So he is now my husband and has been my husband for 25 years. Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. So and he's a Kiwi. So um, yeah. I went back to the UK after six weeks holiday and thought, you know what, if it doesn't work, I can take my kids to live in a different country for a couple of years. And if it does, that's great. So I, he came over to, to the UK, met my then ex-husband and his wife. And Nick just said, yep, take the kids. I'm in America anyway. So yeah. we've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. And do you remember early memories of you know landing back in New Zealand when you decide to sort of immigrate here um do you, do you remember the differences um like what it was like was it hard really hard so you, you couldn't phone home as easy as you can now because it was so expensive I couldn't get my head around the fact that north was warm and south was cold when I was driving around I couldn't pronounce half the words so we lived in Havakopai in Wellington but I couldn't say that and I couldn't say Pororua, so I used to get a taxi and say, can you take me to Kmart or drop me at the police academy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like a whole different language. And, you know, getting lost isn't fun, and I did it all the time. Going shopping was really hard because my kids would say, oh, I want to my Heinz tomorrow, or whatever. So it was, that part was really tough. Um, yeah. And so tr immigrating to the other side of the world, wow, it's, it's yeah takes courage that definitely takes courage so you're that's you know half of your life in the uk then at the other half uh as a kiwi do you do you feel like a new zealander now or do you'll always be a brit but you're just quite happy here what's your identity around that 
I think I'll always be a Brit, but my loyalty is to New Zealand. You know, whenever I go to the UK, I go home. Um, but when I come back, I come home. So it's quite, I think it's very easy to be English in England. And I talked to a friend of mine and he said, well, that's because when we were 20, we might have been sitting in a pub and someone fell over outside and we'd laugh. So we have a long history of stories that you don't have. And, and obviously my cousins is in the UK or my family are in the UK. So would I move back? No. Do I love living in New Zealand? Yes. Do I love visiting my friends and family? Yeah. If I could pick them all up and bring them here, Mark, I'll be the happiest person yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of felt by a lot of people. And so fab New Zealand uh, is no accident, is it? No, no, no. <laughs> so I, so when I came to New Zealand, I, I have a qualification in preschool teaching and things. So I, I went preschool teaching because there was no youth work. And then to cut a quite a long story short, I did that for two years. And then I saw this job advertised to set up young disabled clubs in New Zealand and they wanted five. So I went and took that role with an organization for the elderly. And I couldn't understand why they were putting the elderly and young together, but hey, they did. And it was almost impossible. I was paid $12 an hour for 20 hours a week in school term only. So there was going to be impossible to set up five young disabled clubs around Auckland. So I worked 40 hours a week all the way through the school holidays. And at the end of that 12 months, habit the five. So the ministry had to continue to fund it. And then I was like, everything I heard from these young people is they wanted to hang out with their, their non-disabled friends. And I was like, ding dong, that sounds like that. Mm -hmm. So um, really naughty, uh, established FAB over here and then went to the Ministry of Health and said, can I take that contract that you've got to the other organization over there because this is what they want. And they said, yeah, it was only $15,000 at the time. So that was how FAB really began. And um, yeah, it has 37 youth workers now, two youth spaces, um, hundreds of young people access it every week. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, pretty... it's a real success story. And I've I've been into, um, you know, locally with you and I are sitting in Takapuna on the Auckland's North Shore, um, and I've been into the Fab Building, and um, you know, like so you go in there and you just see the difference you guys make to um, to people's lives. Um, I think you know, from, um, you know, engagement levels, so have happy smiley faces, you could all also save, you know, respite for carers, um, yeah. the impact and, and the value of that uh, organization and, and the community is huge. Um, and, and in terms of, I just want to sort of, not want to dwell on um, the, the difference in the UK and New Zealand too much, but from a disability perspective, what did you find when you got here, like in terms of how we um, empowered or didn't or treated people who weren't, um, you know, didn't have an as able bodied? What was the difference like here with the UK? Um, well, um, they'd only just really, New Zealand was only just closing down institutions when I got here, which was probably 10 years after the UK. So that was quite massive. So there was a whole group of disabled people coming out and who had known nothing but institutions. Um, and, you know, there's many of those still alive. So that was a huge shock um, that even when they closed institutions, what, what they said was, oh, we'll open up houses that have got six, eight or 10 people in it. So they're just many institutions. Um, so, and disabled people did not have a voice at all. So everything was provided to them, was done to them. 
their voice wasn't considered important. Um, it was all about providers and sometimes families. So, and it was the bare minimum, bare minimum of, and very few options, which shocked me. But I think the biggest thing that shocked me was the schooling system for people, young people with disabilities, because there really wasn't any. They were, if they went to school, that was great. If they went to school, they could sit at the back of the class. And that was, for me, it's like, if you don't create opportunity for people to be educated and people to socialize, then what is their life about? So, um, which hence why we started FAB and and then, you know, in FAB, there was lots of opportunities for education and education for yourself and employment. And we've carried that on at, at YES with iLead. But I think that was the biggest thing. It's it's that lack of voice, um, that lack of decision-making, that lack of being valued as citizens and they weren't valued as citizens. And are they now? A little bit. Does New Zealand and well, I don't know the UK as much now, but does New Zealand have a long way to go? Absolutely. Mm. And I think that's been for me the biggest shift actually is um, around char charity, charitable endeavours, uh, our sector is um, after quite a few years of doing two people without them having a voice, um, we're now starting to get it right, and we're starting to, you know, co-design. I think it's the, the sort of trendy jargon, yeah. but. Um, involve people in decision making about their lives and what they need uh, and New Zealand would you say from being behind actually is stealing a bit of a march on the rest of the world in terms of co-design and yeah. um, it took a while and to be honest we were at, yes through I lead and working with young people and I suppose in the whole of my 26 years I would never consider putting a project or a program out there that hadn't been co-designed for the people that we're going to use it you know it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're going to co-design something if you're going to design something for women well it would be pretty strange if it was a whole group of guys that did it but it wasn't seen as strange that it was a whole group of non-disabled people doing it so i think we've always done it you know i always laugh about the fact you know and other people say to me you're always ahead of the eight ball and i was like because well, i always talk to disabled people about how we're going to do this what does it look like and i think we're doing really well one of my frustrations is government departments think co-design is would you like A, B or C. So we have a little bit of work, but we have a strong, amazing group of young people through iLead who are suitably empowered to know what co-design is. And we'll tell any government department or organisation who says we co-designed this if they did or didn't do it properly. So that makes me smile. So we're empowering, you know, not just the odd voice of a person with a disability, but a lot. And individualized funding is impacting on that. Enabling of lives is impacting on that. So five million people, million people with an impairment, 1.2, we should be leading the country, Mark, not just saying we're doing well, but leading the world. You know, we've, we have an opportunity to show the world how we do it. And we do it in some spaces, but there's this underlying, especially with COVID, because all the providers moved back in and took over, as did families. And our young people and people with disabilities were like back-footed again. So we're just ramping that up now to say, yeah. hang on, give it back. And that's, that's one in five with an impairment. And so that's in New Zealand, that's right. Is that what you said? One, one in four. One in four. And yeah. they, that's both cognitive and physical. 
Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. So that so that one in four people identify as having a disability in New Zealand. And in terms of iLead, just for our listeners, just it'd be really good to understand how iLead works, which is is in that kind of service user takes the lead to a certain extent or certainly helps design the program. Just yeah. Mm. So iLead was designed by young people with disabilities. They came up with a name and it's iLead, let us lead, let's lead. So this is a really big message to government departments and providers about let us lead. Um, and also an encouragement to other young people with disabilities, let's lead. So I lead, we like to refer to it as a national movement of young people with disabilities. So this is young people, we are training them to be on boards. We are training them to lobby government. We are training them to partner with government. So we had, they met with the minister, Minister Sipalani, um, and there was about eight of them. And she said, what do you want? And they said, we want to have a conference, a two day conference, national conference, bringing young people with disabilities from all around the country, from all different organizations and walks of life together. And we want to look at a whole seven different subjects housing, education, employment, etc. So she said, well, why not do it in Parliament? And I went, because it's the most inaccessible building in the country. But anyway, we made it work. So the young people took over the Great Hall um, in Parliament for two days. It was an adult free zone for the first day. So they, no, you know, the minister said, can I come? And they went, no. They allowed her to open it, but that was it. And all of the organisations that funded it weren't allowed there until two o'clock on the second day when they could hear the young people feed back to them. And what this group of 57 young people did was develop report cards that have been presented to the government. So over the two days, um, they facilitated every session. We trained them to do that. They designed the whole conference and then they developed report cards to the government on how they're doing in each of those areas, in employment, in education, in communication, all of those things. And they're now working, holding the government to account to those report cards. So I just love it, hey? Um, it's mm. just, you know, the minister, to be fair on her, she has accepted that. All her government departments have to accept it. We work with the Ministry of Education, all sorts of places. They fly a group of young people down there to ask them questions and really talk to them about what does it look like if we implement this. So that for me is like a national movement of young people with disabilities and that's highly. I want to know in your own words, what's Sonia Thursby's um, superpower? Um, I think my superpower is stubbornness. <laughs> I don't go away. You know, there's a funder here who turned us down twice who I went back and go, no, it's not okay to turn us down. And they now use me as an example of someone who never gives up and never goes away. So I think my superpower, and I believe, I totally believe in what we do um, with every inch of my fiber. So I think it's being, yeah, no, it will be either stubborn or super passionate. Mm. You keep tapping into the reason you do this stuff. Um, yeah. And what, what's your best day in the office? Like what, what's the thing that you look back on kind of with the greatest warmth and awe glow? I think, to be honest, every day the young people come in and hang out of the office feeds my soul. 
So there's times when, you know, like everybody have to do board meetings and reports and da 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 da. And I sometimes need to go back and look at why I'm doing this. And so for me, a great day in the office is, you know, I was super, super, super proud when I stood in Parliament and Cam Calhoun opened the ILEAD conference. So when I first met Cam, he had very few dreams and goals. He's now an international speaker. And I stood and watched him open Parliament at, for our conference. And like I had tears, I was so proud. And one of our young autistic people who, you know, she was a, a teen mum, eight months pregnant and stood up and addressed Parliament. And I just like, those are the moments that I look and go, people write young people off. So for me, a best day in the office is every time I get a call to say a young person has achieved something or they're happy or they're coming in, because that's why, you know, when a funder says, no, you can't have $1.3 million, Sonia, because you just want to build a stupid innovation youth hub. And I go, well, I do actually, because our young people deserve it. So I am fortunate every single day I get up and go to work, I am grateful because I would do what I do voluntarily and work stacking shelves in food town. So to be paid for what I do, there's not, there's not really a bad day at the office. It's just a whole group of people who believe in what we do and it just feeds yourself. Mm. Fantastic. And in terms of, you know, our sector, how it's set up, um, is there anything you would, if you could change, what, what would you change about how, you know, community organisations are set up, um, how they're governed, how they're funded, um, anything? Oh, so much, hey, so much. Um, for our sector, for, so for the disability sector, I think that the government should be asking questions around what percentage of your staff had have, have an impairment, because I think there's, uh, you know, I'm non-disabled, but there's way too many organisations that, that, that take the disability dollar, if you like, and don't actually employ anyone with a disability. So that's a frustration. I think, and I think we've got way too many charities. You know, if somebody came along and said to me, I can do FAB way better than FAB, and it's a different organisation, and it's about the young people, um, there's, there is enough money to go around, but it's split across so many charities, it's not funny. There's some great CEOs, bad CEOs, great governance, bad governance. And again, you know, five million people, we should be on top of this. So there needs to be some bravery around collaboration and amalgamation. And in our sector, in giving disabled people more power, and yes, that means providers may disappear, but surely that has to be our goal. If you're an NGO providing a social service because there's a gap or a need or it's, not good then your goal has to be to make yourself redundant so because if i'm redundant then that means everybody with a disability is included as they should be in mainstream community any personal goals um what do you like doing outside of um outside of work um i've got we've got a little a little batch up at so little beach house not a house it's a little batch up in open owning so um, i'm learning all about diy which is you know it's badly the crooked house don't look too close <laughs> but i'm actually loving um loving the whole having the batch and going up there and and i've just i've six years without having a dog and i've just got a puppy so i it's sort of um yeah 
and obviously like lots of people you know my goal was to go and see the Tour de France last year which was going out of Nice on my birthday and COVID happened so my personal goal is I still want to go and see the Tour de France um, right. I just think that would be amazing so in in terms of work my goal is to leave a legacy and yeah. and also my goal is to for no one to sit know that I've gone you know I don't want I don't want to turn around when I leave and everyone goes, oh my gosh, Sonia's not here. No one will know that I've gone. I just want to be able to look back over my shoulder and say, you know, it's almost like I remember leaving Fab in the UK and all the kids left the Fab group and they all went home that night and I looked at my co-worker and I was like, huh, not even one tear. And that was so cool because they didn't really know I was leaving. Mm. So they weren't sad and, I, and that's what I want. So I want to, I want to leave legacy. I want young people with disabilities to be super valued um, and I'll keep messing around with my beach house and trying to train a very wayward puppy. Perfect. Well, it's been wonderful, Connect, and thank you for sharing your story. A massive thank you for listening to Purpose Podcast. Podcasts. I'm thoroughly enjoying bringing these stories to you. Visit our website, purposefullypodcast.com, Join our tribe, leave your email address. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please hit subscribe. Please leave a review, really appreciate it. 